And on page 994, we will be hearing from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The word of the Lord. It's the voting season. That's the time of year it is for those of us who particularly live in um, Canada and Ontario, where we only get, you know, two or three months of uh, weather where the water isn't completely frozen over. You know, that's us feeling sorry for ourselves. Um, But it's the boating season. It's the season when college friends from years ago get together and go on canoe trips. It's a time when summer camp uh, guests and campers do the same. It's a time for boating and fishing. It's a time for pleasure craft and tall ship visits in various places in the country. And it's the time also when we, um, we think about Uh, the tragedies that can be connected to boating. It's one of the lead stories often in our news uh, each and every year. Boating has uh, really got in our head in our history and even recent history. The tragedies around uh, massive big ships like uh, the Lusitania um, sunk because of human evil and the tragedy of the Titanic uh, sinking because of human error. Um, These kinds of boating tragedies have really sunk deeply into our psyche and our culture, and they continue to do, even as we hear reports of boats being overwhelmed in storms and rough waters, uh, putting refugees and their families at serious risk. At our family cottage in Muskoka, there is uh, quite a lovely boating tradition, though. And sure, it happens during the week in the summer, but there's a particularly lovely boating tradition that takes place on Sunday morning. And that is that uh, cottagers from various places on uh, the lake uh, make their way to worship at, uh, um, uh, at Memorial Pines, which is the church on our lake where Christians have been gathering for decades um, to worship uh, the living God. 
And it's quite a beautiful thing to see canoes and to see rowboats and to see small motorboats and sometimes larger motorboats um, make their way together uh, to gather uh, for worship. And this reminds me, um, whenever I see this and when I participate in this, um, this reminds me that um, there's a strong symbol in the Christian tradition of the boat as the church. Um, It starts with Noah's Ark. It continues through the various stories of Jesus and his disciples when he uh, is teaching them and doing amazing things in their midst, often surrounding the boat. And this morning's text is one of those stories. The, The design of the church, the nave, which is the main section of the church here, Um, in a cathedral and in any Christian church. The nave comes from the Latin word navis, which means boat or uh, which means ship, or um, navicular, which means boat. And the early Christians had this sense that the boat was an important image. And so there are strange grass images in churches around the world that picture the boats. Early Christians, when they were being persecuted, um, fell into the habit of using the image of the boat to sort of um, subversively express the image of the cross, because the mass in a boat was shaped like the cross. And the pulpit, in Christian imagination, is the crow's nest, is the place where the Word of God guides the ship, which is the people of God. It's quite a story, isn't it? One thoughtful pastor um, I came across uh, recently uh, has actually blogged on uh, the difference between boats and cruises. And he articulates, I think in a really pretty compelling way, some of the significant differences between boating and cruising. One, he says, is that for boating, for cruising, there's really not much that you have to be concerned about. You just have to go online and click and sign up for a cruise, whether it's Alaska or the Caribbean or the Mediterranean or South America or wherever. Whereas in the boat in the early uh, centuries of the Mediterranean, the boats in the time of Jesus' day, um, boating was dangerous because the sea was understood to be kind of the last frontier that God really didn't have control over or the kind of control or power over. And so there's so much imagery in scripture about the raging sea and power of water. Our pastor friend also talks about the difference between boating and cruising. He says that on cruising and cruising, people just, everybody just does whatever they want. Whereas in real boating, whether it is powered by sail or powered by rowing, Everybody needs to be on the same page. Everybody has a job to do. Everybody needs to be working in unity and in unison. He says that in cruises, people eat at their particular assigned tables. But in boats of the size that we're talking about, there's a singular crew that works together and that eats together and shares a deep community because of the danger that they experience. The text today is one of those classic boating stories. 
in the Gospels. There's the one where Jesus famously teaches the disciples to fish on the other side. It's a wonderful picture of ingenuity and creativity and a spirit-filled church. There's the picture of Jesus encouraging the Apostle Peter, who some Christians see as kind of the center person in the history of the church, who's standing in the boat, encourages Peter to walk on water. And there are various stories, boating stories, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, Noah's Ark is a powerful image of perhaps for the Christian imagination to see the church as the cradle of creation, the church as the place that cares for and is into the preservation and the restoration of everything that God has made and is renewing through his son, Jesus Christ. There's a few things in this text this morning that Alvin read for us that are important. There's the storm. Storms happen. Storms always seem to happen. Even with our advanced meteorology, it's amazing to me how our meteorology, meteorological science doesn't control the weather. And in some ways, the weather seems to be getting somewhat worse or more dangerous, or maybe we just know more stories about it, whether it is flooding or whether it is bitter cold or life-threatening heat or powerful life-destroying and town-destroying winds. And so there's a storm. The second thing that's important in the story is that Jesus is sleeping in the middle of the storm. It's, it's not an easy one to get your head around, that Jesus is sleeping in the storm. And it turns out that we aren't the only ones who may be a little bit disturbed about that. The second thing is, is the, thir the third thing is in the flow of the narrative is that there's question number one. And the question comes from Jesus' closest disciples, his friends, the one, the inner circle, the ones who had decided to follow him, the ones who were experienced in boating, who were experienced in fishing. And they come to Jesus who is sleeping in the middle of the storm, this life-threatening, boat-tipping storm, and they ask him this question, don't you care? Don't you care? And there's meant to be frustration, there's anger, there's just complete perplexity in the question. Don't you care? Then Jesus wakens and responds to them and he calms the sea with his words. And in this passage, Mark writes that he made the waters not just settle down, but he uses the phrase, he made the water completely calm. Completely calm. The polar exact opposite to what they had been experiencing. And then he has two questions, question two and question three in the story, and he asks them about their fear. He asks them about their worry. He asks them, why don't they have faith? Or better translated, why don't they have trust? And then the story, this little passage, actually becomes more complex 
and not less complex for the discerning heart and discerning ear and eye. It says that they were terrified. So Mark uses the word terrified not to describe them during the storm, but to describe them after Jesus had performed the miracle of speaking over the water and calming it down perfectly. It was in the midst of their rescue, it was in the midst of their salvation that they were terrified. Just when you think you get a handle on the scriptures, just when you think that you can completely understand what is going on with God in your life, in the church, and in the world, you get these little curveballs that take you deeper, that open your mind, your eyes, and your ears to what is happening. This is a showstopper for even the cursory reader of the text this morning. They're terrified after Jesus performs the miracle. And the fourth question in the story is they ask is, who is this that the water, that the storm obeys him? Who in the world is this? And that's where I want to dwell mostly this morning in the brief time that we have together. And let me ask you this. When you're worried, when you're troubled, when you're angry, when you're terrified, when you can't see the future and you don't understand the present, and you're even struggling and troubled and angry with God about the past, when you're angry and fearful and lacking trust with others, with the church, and with the world. Is this the question that comes first? Usually the question is, you know, what in the world is going along? How can we fix this? How am I feeling about this? How is this affecting me? What do I want? What are we going to do about this? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? These are the more common kinds of questions that come to our minds in the midst of catastrophe, whether in our hearts, in the church, or in the world. But the disciples ask, who is this? The Gospel of Mark is all about revealing who Jesus is. That's Mark's purpose in writing this set of accounts and stories and parables that we call the Gospel of Mark. That's the purpose. But Mark does it very, very slowly, more slowly and more secretly and more carefully in some ways than the other Gospels. And so in New Testament studies, there's something called the Markan secret, that Jesus' identity is never completely fully disclosed. You have to listen, you have to learn, you have to go deeper in order to really understand who Jesus is. Let's, let's take a few moments and do that together. We're reminding of ourselves that we're not sort of asking what's the source of the storm. That we're not even so much asking yourself what the purpose of the storm is. What we're asking is who is Jesus in the storm? Jesus is sleeping. Surely this reminds us something really important that we often forget about Jesus, is that Jesus was fully human. He was a human being. 
in every way that you're a human being and I'm a human being, except for sin. And so there was a perfection in his humanity, but it was a true, real humanity nevertheless. And this tells us of the word that the church and its theological fathers and mothers have come up with over the years. It's the term incarnation. And so we're reminded here and in other places that Jesus was thirsty, that he was tired, that he participated in the fullness of human life and its normalness and its challenges. And just previously, he has been teaching. He has been working hard with his disciples and with people who have been coming to him. And now he takes a break on the ship, on the cruise. He takes some time out, but it happens to be in the middle of the storm, and so that keeps our attention. The disciples come to him and they say, don't you care if we die? Don't you care about us? Don't you give a darn about what's going on here? Here you are just sleeping. Are you the only one in the boat? Are you the only one in the world that, that doesn't realize that we are almost capsizing, that we are going to drown? Scott Bader Say writes a powerful beautiful little book called Following Jesus in the Culture of Fear. And really what that book is, is it's a contemporary treatment of the doctrine of providence. What uh, Seder Bay does is he sets up our fearfulness and the dominance of fear in our culture, identified by many of us as beginning in, from 9-11 on, but it goes much deeper and much longer than that, of course, we know that. And what Bader does is he gives a new, fresh take on the doctrine of providence. And what is the doctrine of providence in the life of the Christian? It is this understanding that we believe that there is a compassionately powerful God who is upholding creation by his hand and his heart, and that he is steering his people and his creation in the direction of goodness in its fulfillment. This is the doctrine and this is the Christian belief that God is the Lord of history. And that even with all of the glitches and all of the curveballs and all of the ins and outs and the ups and downs, that God is ultimately the one who is guiding. And so actually, it doesn't seem to be that odd a question for the disciples to ask Jesus, don't you care? Because that's a question that I think we want to ask honestly in the depth of our psalm-guided and shaped prayers when we come to God with the things that we are frustrated about that we just do not understand. And you can tell what those things are better than I could list them for you standing in front of you. Who is this, they say? Even the wind, even the storm obeys him. This reminds us about going deeper in this question of who is Jesus. And we remember that not only is he human, but that he is very God of very God. That he is the living son of God, that he is the second person in the Trinity 
that he is the word through whom everything was made that was made. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the creator. We're talking about the sustainer. We're talking about the word which is the source of life. And later on, the disciples, when they reflect on this story, and when we reflect on this question, who is Jesus in the midst of the storm, instead of so much exegeting the storm, but more exegeting the word and the message and the good news, their ears would have been ringing with the words of the psalmist, their Bible, their scriptures, that they were raised on from their, on their mother's lap. Psalm 65, verse 7, You stilled the roaring seas, the roaming waves, the roaring waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Psalm 89, 9, You, make, you rule over the surging seas. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107, 29, He stilled the storm with a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So they ask a question, who is this? And it sets us up to go a little bit deeper than our own immediate personal fears. It offers us an opportunity to think and to pray and to struggle with God in a direction that we don't usually do because we are often so filled up with our own anxieties, with our own desires, with our own plans. And so the final question he asked them, why are you so afraid? You still not have faith. The reason Jesus was sleeping in the storm, I'm here to tell you, is because God does not slumber nor sleep. Jesus is the one who was sent by God to reveal who God was perfectly in every way. And when Jesus sleeps in the storm, it's because of his utter trust in his Father. That in every situation, Jesus is the one who teaches us that you can trust God with all of your heart and with all of your mind, with all of your soul. That's why Jesus came. Not just to say some nice things. Not just to do a little bit of religious work in Israel. Not just to stir up politics of his time. Jesus came in order, the writer of Hebrews says, to reveal God to us as God really is. Jesus shows us that God can be trusted. And that's why Jesus can sleep in the storm. We don't sleep very well. Matter of fact, we lose sleep in the crisis of life more often. And the reason is, is because our anxiousness gets the better of us. Our anxiousness and our fearfulness sometimes works to convince us that if only we had the right method, if only we had the right plan, if only we executed the right skill at the right time in the right place, that we could solve this thing that we could secure the place of the church in the world, that we could secure peace on earth in our time through the politics of the day. And so this question, who is Jesus, 
pushes us even deeper. It pushes us to the doctrine of our faith that is at the center of everything that we believe, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons who love and who trust one another completely. In the last 50, 60, 70 years, we've been learning in the theology of the church that the Trinity is at the center of our understanding of creation, that the Trinity is at the center of our understanding of Scripture, that the Trinity is at the center of our understanding of why Jesus came as a human and as the divine Son of God. It's the Trinity that undergirds our understanding of providence, that a compassionate, good, loving God is guiding and holding and steering the universe in the direction for its best, despite all of the evidence against. The disciples invite us to ask the question, who is this? There's a little book that's been published, among many others, on the Trinity in recent years in the church. It's called The Trinity, the God that we don't know. And what that implies is that there is still so much to grow in. Evangelicals, our tradition, in many ways the tradition of Knox Church, along with the Reformed tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, is really strong in the beginning of faith, really strong on bringing people to Jesus, really strong on having people accept Jesus as their Savior. But sometimes we get just a little bit stuck in that early quick start on the faith. When you begin to ask that question, who is this? Who is God? What does it mean that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uniquely and only? What does it mean that in the midst of a tumultuous world like the one that we seem to be facing each and every day with shock after surprise after tragedy, we actually believe in the doctrine of providence that a good God who is compassionate in character is holding this universe and this world and our church and he is moving it and guiding it in a direction of fulfilled purpose and goodness for good and for God's glory. And when we see this, we can set our sail and the winds of God's Spirit can blow us in the right direction through calm and through storm. Many of you know this, that my father died when I was a young boy. My sister was a young teenager. But one of the graces of God in our lives is that we were given several stories that have sustained us, many of them connected to my dad. We grew up in a family that had a family cottage, not the family cottage that we have now. That's a sort of a benefit of marriage for me. Um, But this was a benefit of birth kind of a cottage. My grandparents, the Johansons, had a beautiful cottage, Fenora Point, a magical, grace-filled, mysterious place that my sister and I fell so deeply in love with. And we learned so many wonderful things. You know, when my grandparents weren't there one weekend, we learned something that we didn't ever know, that you could actually unhitch the dock 
attach it to the boat, and take it around the point into the deep, rough water. And have our parents just whisper to us, this is really fun, but you don't need to tell Grandpa and Grandma about our fun today. We learned all kinds of beautiful things about nature. We weren't a powerboat kind of family. We were a sort of crayfish hunting, nature-loving kind of walking in the deep woods kind of cottagers. My grandfather was a very short, powerful man who was addicted to his work, but it was with great joy just watching him and trying to participate with him and being reprimanded for not doing things quite the way that he wanted to do them. And on weekends, my dad would come up. We'd be up there for most of the summers, those early years with my mom and my grandparents, and my dad would come up. My dad was a big guy. He was, I can say that, he was bigger than me, and he was stronger than me. And our boat, the only boat on this particular weekend that worked, was a little punt that my grandfather had built from hand, by hand. And it had a little three and a half Evinrude motor. And one day, my mom announced to my dad that uh, we needed to go to, to Detman's store to get some groceries. And so we got in this little boat. And with, because of the size of my dad, and this was a mile or so trip, size of my dad, the, the, the edge of the boat was just that much above the water. So we went to Detman's and we got the groceries, the Wonder Bread and the Grape Orange Crush, the Grape Crush and the Orange Crush and the Cracker Jacks and the Pink Puffy Elephant Popcorn and the Glazed Donuts and all of the staple products you know, of our cottage life together, at least according to my memory. We went to Detman's, it probably took us over an hour blazing hot day and we came back down and we weren't away from shore 20 minutes when the worst storm that I can remember broke over our lake. Now I just want to tell you that when the Barry tornado hit, I was actually driving across Highway 9 into the teeth of it. So I've experienced the after effects of a serious life-threatening tornado. And this was brutal. The waves started coming up high because our lake was a big lake and started lapping into the boat and the water was rising in the boat and the rain, as my memory tells me accurately, was like there were thousands of golf balls just pounding us all over the place and it turned pitch black and we started to cry. I would have been about seven, my sister would have been about 11 or 12 and we started to cry and to call out. My dad stayed really calm, and I never remember, I never forget that over time, as we started to, more that we started to cry and scream, with the, the, the paper bags now completely destroyed and the Wonder Bread and the Great Prush floating around in the water and, and the glazed donuts, not so much anymore. And we realized that my dad was angling towards the shore. Lightning was flashing all over the place. We were just completely, completely in shock. And we began to melt. We got to the shore of a cottage that we'd never seen before, and my dad hauled us out of the boat, and we were scrambling to get the food. I still remember him saying, just leave it there. And we scrambled up the rock and the lawn, and we went under a porch, and we were safe. 
And it was one of the first times in my life, and the first time in my sister's life, that we learned that we could trust my dad. That we knew he had our best in mind. That no matter what was going to happen, that there was something in his goodness, there was something in his power, there was something in his, the ability of his heart to look after his children. Doesn't mean the storm didn't come. But it went, meant that after my dad passed away a few years later, we began to transfer that faith to our Heavenly Father, who was strong, who is compassionate, and who has our lives and the direction of our church and the trajectory of the creation and the universe in his heart for the sake of good and the sake of his glory. And so what season do we find ourselves in these days in a city and in the church and in the world? I think we find ourselves in the boating season. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, receive this good news. Amen.